it's helpful to think about these epidemics as having three phases. There is the immediate pandemic phase, the intermediate phase, and the post-pandemic phase. The immediate phases we're still in. And I would say for, I do not think we are at the beginning of the end of this pandemic. I, I think we're just at the, at the uh, end of the beginning. That was Nicholas Christakis, distinguished Yale professor and author of Apollo's Arrow, talking about COVID-19. But he's speaking exactly two years ago. So this is a rerun of an episode published in May of 2021, and it remains the single most listened to episode of the Boulder podcast. In that conversation two years ago, Christakis tells me that the post-pandemic phase of COVID-19 will be 2024. At the time, I was stunned. I mean, surely he's wrong. I thought that's three years from now. But he wasn't wrong. He was prescient. Oh, and one little thing. Two years ago, I was calling this The Gap Year Podcast because we were all taking a weird timeout together. I've since renamed it The Boulder Podcast. Different name, same podcast. Let's listen. I'm Debbie Weil, and this is The Gap Year Podcast, where we talk about making the most of the collective gap year we're all living through right now. When will the COVID-19 pandemic end? That's the question on everyone's mind. And today I talked to one man who just might have an answer to that question. Nicholas Christakis is an MD, a PhD sociologist, and a public health expert. He's a Sterling professor at Yale, a researcher on the topics of social networks and human goodness, and the best-selling author, most recently, of Apollo's Arrow, The Profound and Enduring Impact of Coronavirus on the Way We Live. He's been named to Time Magazine's list of the 100 most influential people in the world. His fluency in explaining the science, epidemiology, psychology, sociology, and history of pandemics makes this a fascinating conversation. You'll hear why he chose to publish Apollo's Arrow last fall, midway through the COVID-19 pandemic, before we knew the end of the story how his childhood experiences with illness and death affected his career choices, why he thinks this pandemic won't be over until 2024. Boy, that punctured my bubble of optimism. With the availability of vaccines in the U.S. and now twice vaccinated myself, I've been enjoying a feeling of freedom and hope, or at least a loss of anxiety. We also talked about separating the biological versus the psychological impacts of the pandemic, what herd immunity actually means and whether we'll get there, and what the public health messaging around the pandemic should be. I ask him point blank, when is the next pandemic? The answer is unnerving, sooner than you might think. But we end on a positive note. Plagues historically bring loss, grief, confusion, and misinformation. But they also reveal cooperative and generous behavior, the best of humankind. 
I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Let's jump right in. Nicholas, welcome to the show. Debbie, thank you so much for having me. A quick question before we dive into our pandemic topic, which is that you're both a physician and a sociologist, and I wondered what drove you to do that. And don't forget, tell us, define for us what a sociologist is. Oh, goodness. The question is quick, but I'm afraid my answer is meandering because it reflects the sort of crazy nature of my interests and the slightly peripatetic path I've taken through life. I um, so I don't know. Can I have an indulgence? Can I have a slightly longer? Oh yes, no, you 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 get an indulgence. Well, okay. you want indulgence, but go ahead, go ahead. Okay. Well, I you know I uh, when I was a boy, I grew up. Uh, my parents immigrated from Greece. I was raised in Washington D.C. I actually my parents adopted other children. There were five of us in the home. But when I was young, uh, my mother when I was six, my mother when she was twenty. Uh, how old was my mother in sixty eight? So she was twenty eight approximately. She was diagnosed with Hodgkin's disease, which is a cancer of the lymphatic system. And at the time, there weren't many effective treatments for it. She had a long course of her illness. She died when I was 25, and she was 47 in 1987. And so through my whole childhood, my mother was seriously ill. And uh, all three of my mother's sons became doctors, uh, and partly as a result of this. So I went to medical, I went to to college, and I was... um, you know, interested in, in in being a doctor, but at the time I was especially interested in in linguistics. I was interested in um, in what is known as semiotics, or or the study of of symbols and of understanding how people think abstractly. Uh, but I was too afraid to pursue my own interest uh, in this. I thought I if I did that I might not get into medical school, which was dumb. Of course, I would have gotten or could have gotten into medical school, and so I switched my major to um, biology. And then I, uh, I got into Harvard Medical School, where I matriculated in uh, in 1984. And and uh, I, you know, I I uh, when I went there, I had actually wanted to be a reconstructive surgeon, and uh, reattach severed extremities. And I used to skip class as a first year medical student and go operate with this incredible doctor by the name of John Mulliken, who there's another whole story of how I hooked up with him and and uh, why I was playing hooky from. <laughs> from class and winding up in the operating room with him, you know, first assisting on these incredible cases. And, um, but then my mother got quite sick and, uh, and, and actually died between my second and third years of medical school. Mm. And, uh, and, and while I was in medical school, I got exposed to some sciences that sort of feathered into the social sciences. For example, I was, I took some classes in the history of medicine. I took some classes in epidemiology and biostatistics. And so my interest in social science got rekindled. And in parallel with that, I discovered that I would be unlikely to be a good surgeon uh, for a whole host of reasons. And in parallel with that, I, I kind of decided that I wanted to be a scientist and run my own laboratory and do research. And for all of those reasons, including the necessity of caring for my mother, who was then dying in Washington, D.C., I took a year off in medical school to get a master's in public health degree, which even excited me even more. Like I then was mm-hmm. really exposed to a whole set of, of ideas about how social factors influence uh, health. And then I resolved to get a Ph.D. degree in addition to my medical degree uh, to get more formal training to equip me to be a scientist and run my own laboratory. And so then the question was, in what field? And I picked the field of sociology 
for serendipitous reasons, again, I had read an, an essay by a very famous woman by the name of Renee Fox, who was a who just died. She's 93. In fact, my book, Apollo's Arrow, is dedicated to her. And uh, she had written this essay in the 50s called Training for Detached Concern, how doctors are trained to be concerned by their patients, but not, not too emotionally connected to them. Because if they're overly emotionally connected, this might adversely affect their ability to think carefully and clearly about what's in the doctor's best interest. Anyway, this was a famous essay Renee wrote in the 50s. I read it. I was very influenced by it. I sought her out. She was then at the University of Pennsylvania. And I decided to go there to get my PhD and train with her in this field of sociology, which is sort of like in between anthropology and economics. It's a field that's concerned with uh, the social organization of human beings. So I finished, I graduated from Harvard Medical School in 89 with an MD and MPH, an MD and an MPH. And then I went to the University of Pennsylvania. And there I did my clinical training as a house officer. I was an intern and a resident in internal medicine and got my PhD. And then I finally finished my formal education in 1995 when I was 33 and got my first job at the University of Chicago. And I was appointed both in the Department of Medicine where I was a practicing hospice doctor, I took care of people who were dying, which again is a, just a direct reflection of my childhood experiences caring for someone who was seriously ill, and a professor of sociology, uh, sort of doing research on on how social factors affect health. Anyway, that's a long-winded sort of little biographical. Uh, yeah, no, but I mean, you know, it's fascinating, and actually. I'm going to ask my questions in a different order now because mm. that, that was actually fascinating and very helpful. Mm. Uh, because I, I, I feel I feel like you, you in a way you've answered why you wrote your book. So I, did, can I ask yeah. you another question? Or, or no, you can of course. But I was just going to say that I mean I have a you know I have a very complicated relationship with medicine because on the one hand I'm proud to be a doctor. I I'm glad I trained in medicine. I. I find it morally fulfilling to be a physician. I I took care of people who were dying for my whole clinical career. I stopped seeing patients about 12 years ago now for various reasons. But at the same time, I I wonder, I probably could have done much of what I'm doing now, not all of it, but much of it had I not trained, even if I had not trained as a doctor. And to become a doctor requires a tremendous investment of time in one's 20s, which are crucial years in one's life, as you know. and you know, it's it's comp and and I'm also somewhat skeptic, skeptical about the benefits of modern medicine, and a bit even nihilistic about medicine. So I have a very intellectually and internally conflicted attitude about medicine. I would say. Well, you know, you so uh, you're going to have to get together with my husband Sam Harrington, who's written a book that is a, he's a retired physician, but very much the same attitude towards mm. modern medicine and how it's practiced and how older people are not taken care of properly and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So, but, um, but again, I'm going to ask a question out of order because it yeah. just occurs to me. It makes sense. You, um, first of all, I, I love your book, uh, Apollo's arrow and read it right when it came out. And I noted in it that you wrote it from, I think this is, this is right from March to August of 2020. And then it was published very quickly. And, mm -hmm. you know, as an editor type myself, uh, I thought, wow, that, that was really daring of you. Because, of course, we hadn't had that second wave or mm -hmm. third wave, second wave, I guess, of the fall and the winter. But it was and obvious so, you would. 
okay, but the story wasn't over. And I don't know, what made you decide to do that? And I feel like somehow you kind of told me because of all these various interlocking interests, but uh, I don't know, what made you do it right then and get it out before the story was over? Well, I, um, well, first of all, just to, well, intellectually to back up, it's, you're right, the story's not over, but there's a kind of um, standard procedure, um, a modus operandi when it comes to epidemics, that's not at all surprising. I mean, those of us, you know, people listening to this today may, may feel like the way we've come to live is so alien and unnatural. But it's really important to understand that plagues are not new to our species. They're just new to us. I mean, we think it's crazy that we're living this way, but human beings have been confronting serious epidemics for thousands of years. Uh, plagues are in the Bible. They're in Homer. They're in Shakespeare. They're in Cervantes. They're, they're, they fill our religious traditions. There are experts, medical historians and epidemiologists who understand them. Um, so even though when I was writing the book, you know, that we were still at the early stages of the epidemic, much of what has happened to us is very typical and very predictable if you understand epidemiology and you understand the history of disease. But to go back, I mean, what I, I run a laboratory at Yale, it's called the Human Nature Lab. We we have many divisions in the lab. We do a whole bunch of things. We we study the the genetics of human friendship and the evolutionary biology of human social interaction. We study global public health interventions, how to change behaviors of villagers in developing worlds to enhance their practices with respect to hygiene or vaccination behaviors. We we do online experiments with um, online interactions. We do a whole bunch of different things. But in addition to that, every 10 years or so, I, I write a book. And I, um, I, I wrote a book. My first book was published in 1999. It was called Death Foretold, Prophecy and Prognosis in Medical Care. It was about prognostication and its role in end-of-life care. And my second book, published 10 years later in 2009, was called Connected, The Surprising Power of Our Social Networks and, and How They Affect Our Lives. Uh, and then I just had published in 2019 another book, which I kind of mm -hmm. thought was like a really, a book I'm very proud of, honestly. It's called Blueprint, The Evolutionary Origins of a Good Society. And it's a book about, you know, that says scientists have focused too much on the dark side of human nature, on our propensity to violence and hatred and selfishness. Um, but that the bright side and our capacity for love and friendship and cooperation and so on had been neglected. And the book provides an evolutionary account for how and why human beings are good. Anyway, and so I was then working on another book, which I was going to come out in like 10 years in 2029 on, um, on meaning. But then the pandemic struck. And like everyone else, I, you know, had to go home. Uh, so in March of 2019, I, sort of withdrew with my uh, wife and our uh, young son to 2020. 2020. I'm, sorry, I'm sorry, 2020 in March of 2020. Yes. Thank you. Uh, withdrew with my wife and our young son to our a home we have in Vermont. And I became, you know, well, I mean, again, I'm being long winded, but in January in collaboration with some Chinese scientists with whom I had a long-term collaboration, we had access to phone data regarding the movement of millions of people within China. And we were able to use that data to, to trace the flow of people through Wuhan in January of 2020 and how that then was associated with the timing and the intensity and location of the pandemic, of the COVID-19 pandemic, all the way through February. 
And so I really began to study this or pay attention to this pandemic in January. And, and then as a result of this, I was in, immediately aware of what the Chinese were doing. And for listeners who don't know, as of January the 24th, 2020, the Chinese promulgated regulations that required 930 million people to be at home. Mm. And that really got my attention, you know, that the, the Chinese saw in the virus an enemy of sufficient magnitude that they basically detonated a social nuclear weapon to stop it. And so by the end of January, for various reasons, including some preliminary papers that were being published by scientists around the world about the nature of this virus, I became convinced it was going to be a serious global pandemic. And all the epidemiologists I was talking to were similarly concerned. And yet our politicians were unconcerned. You know, in the public sphere at that time, people were saying ridiculous things, especially in the White House, in the Trump administration, but not not just there. I mean, this is not solely a political issue. I mean, there were left-wing and right-wing governors around the country who I think were asleep at the switch. And then Italy collapsed in February. And I was like, okay, surely now they'll take it seriously. This is a rich Western democracy. But even then, people weren't taking it seriously. And so what happened is in, in March I, or late February, I started to send out these Twitter threads that described sort of epidemiology 101. It was just trying to help people understand what was about to happen to us based on my long knowledge of, of contagious processes, you know, for example, contagious diseases and so on, since I, I study networks, so I study human social interactions. And so, um, and then many of those began to go viral, those, those, those Twitter threads. And that gave me the idea that there was a hunger for such information. And so when the lockdowns, you know, the stay-at-home orders in the United States came in early March of 2020, I thought, you know, I'll just write a book about this. And, and that's what I did. So between March and July, I wrote this book, which was almost over home plate for me. I mean, it, it, would, it took advantage of all of the learning I had for the last 30 years. I mean, I, I knew most of what I needed to know to write the book. So that was, part was easy. And, uh, and as you said, I finished it in July, and then it was uh, published in October. And, 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 and my, my hope with the book is that it would help people to understand what it was that we are what it was we are about to experience, we were about to experience what it is that we are experiencing, and what will be the final denouement of this uh, 21st century plague. Yeah. And all right. So I want to get to the final denouement, but, uh, but absolutely. I mean, I had followed you on Twitter and then devoured the book. Let's talk about, because you mentioned about the Chinese putting out that order to stay at home. So let's talk about public education and messaging, if you will, now at this point yeah, um, to get us to herd immunity. And in the sense that, you know, how can I, I assume it should be the leadership of this country most clearly and effectively get across the message that the public health benefit of getting the vaccine and wearing masks and continuing to distance uh, trumps the law. Sorry to use that word. Actually, I didn't mean to do that, but trumps the loss of personal liberty, for example. But this, this just seems like there's a messaging challenge here in, in this public health sphere that should interest you. Yeah. So just, I, I'll try to answer that directly. If I, if I if I go off on a tangent, bring me back, please. But uh, just as the tangent, I'd like to go off briefly is just to uh, refresh for the listeners' minds what herd immunity is. Herd immunity is the idea that a, a population of individuals can be immune from an epidemic, even if not every individual within that population is immune. For example, if you vaccinate 96% of the population against measles, 
even if one of the 4% unvaccinated people doesn't happens to get the measles, there's no way for them to cause an epidemic because there's no one for them to spread it to. They are surrounded by immune individuals. And that threshold, that 96%, is the herd immunity threshold. And you should have the intuition that the more spreadable the disease is, the more intrinsically infectious it is, the higher that percentage might be. And it turns out you can compute that percentage if you know something called the R-naught, the R sub zero, the basic reproduction number of the pathogen. The basic reproduction number is the number of new cases you get for every existing case in a non-immune, normally interacting host population. So right at the beginning, when all the humans are susceptible and we're going about our business in the usual way, how many new cases does a case of the disease cause? And that number for SARS-CoV-2 is three, approximately three. And so the formula to compute the herd immunity threshold is three minus one. It's, it's R-naught minus one divided by R-naught. So if you plug in that number, you get three minus one divided by three. That's two thirds or 67% of the population needs to be immune to reach herd immunity. And actually that number, you need to revise it downward because that calculation makes certain assumptions about human social interactions that we know to be false or overly simplified. And when you make those adjustments, it turns out that the herd immunity threshold actually is at about 50%. So 50% of Americans need to be immune before we can um, reach this important threshold of herd immunity. Uh, and the epidemic is no longer, no, we've sort of taken the wind out of the epidemic. The, the virus is still there. It hasn't been eradicated. It'll still circulate. It'll still kill people. But the epidemic force of the virus will have been stopped when we finally get enough people who are immune, non-immune people who get infected, they just can't create as many cases any longer because they're surrounded by just the right amount of immune people. So that- Wait, so, and, so, wait, so Nicholas, so immune and right now today, do you mean twice vaccinated? Yeah, they have to be twice vaccinated or have survived the natural infection. So we think about 20 to 25% of Americans at this point have been naturally infected and have some meaningful and likely sustained immunity. And probably about 20 to 25% of Americans have now been artificially vaccinated. So we are approaching this important threshold of at least 50% of Americans having acquired this immunity, either naturally due to infection or artificially due to vaccination. But it's more, I don't know how much you want to talk about this, but it's, it's, it's more complicated than that, actually. But but, but but that's very important to reach that threshold. And of course, the more we vaccinate, the better. So right now, Tony Fauci and other leaders are talking about how we need to get to 70 or 80% vaccination. Now, that's true. The more, the better. They, they sometimes use the term herd immunity in that kind of a conversation, which would be, which is incorrect. But, um, but the gist of it is the more people who are vaccinated, the better, and the sooner we will then return to normal life. Um, and so- all right, well, let me ask, wait, hold on. Let me ask a question like that then. When and how will we know that the COVID-19 pandemic, this historic plague is over? Because, uh, you know, with these different complicated things floating around and, you know, maybe 50% yeah. now. Uh, so how do, when will we know? And I, I guess I would like you to answer it in two parts. One, biological, which is our naught rates and so forth. And the other half is, I'll call it sociological. Yes. Yeah. So the way I think about this is that there are, first of all, just to back up, the, uh, the this disease, what, what's happening to us is we are experiencing a once in a century event approximately, which is that, that a new pathogen has been introduced into our midst 
And this pathogen will circulate in our species forever. I don't think we will ever eradicate this pathogen. It's going to become what is known as endemic, like other cold viruses, for example, that just circulate and circulate among us and cause us woe. Um, the virus is having what is known as an ecological release. It's like an invasive species released onto an island in the middle of the ocean that overruns the place. Our bodies are that island to the uh, virus, which is the invasive species. So we have no natural immunity to it. And it's just going to do its thing. I mean, it's a, there's a debate about whether viruses are living things or not, but it's acting for all intents and purposes like any other living thing. It's just going about its business and in, indifferent to our predicament. So, um, so in the long run, this virus will become endemic. By the way, the 1918 uh, so-called Spanish influenza virus, which you know killed millions of people around the world, tens of millions, also is still circulating among us. But it's it's for a variety of reasons. It, its capacity to harm us now has become very limited. So this virus will ultimately have a fate probably like that. But in the shorter term, it's helpful to think about these epidemics as having three phases. There is the immediate pandemic phase, the intermediate phase, and the post-pandemic phase. The immediate phases we're still in. And I would say, for I do not think we are at the beginning of the end of this pandemic. I, I think we're just at the, at the uh, end of the beginning. Whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Really? Yeah. I mean, so look, so are you saying... When will we move into intermediate, 2022? Yeah, I would say something like that. So what's happening now is, is that we are being struck still. I mean, if you just follow what's happening in India today, where, you know, you know, there's over a billion people there are just fresh meat for this virus. And thousands and thousands of people are going to start dying every day there. And in our society, we've done a tremendous job vaccinating people. But we still have quite a number that die every day. And I think we are likely to have, we're going to have a good summer probably, but Come winter, we're going to have another wave of this, not as bad as the waves we've had, unless the virus mutates, which is another whole conversation. I mean, it is mutating, but unless we get variants that are concerning, which we can also come back to. But anyway, just a standard typical pattern is that the um, the first phase, the immediate phase, is when the we experience the biological and epidemiological shock of the pathogen. Uh, and we are still being afflicted by this wave. You know, the virus is still circulating. Uh, and... Until we reach this herd immunity threshold, which we'll probably reach towards the end of 2021, we're still going to be living in a changed world with with wearing masks, uh, with intermittent school and business and border closures, with uh, gathering bans and so on. And and even afterwards, by the way, I mean, it's uh, if I mean, if you're vaccinated, it's quite safe for you and, and a small group of other vaccinated individuals to have a meal indoors. I mean, that's that's the whole point of vaccination. It is really quite safe to do that. But vaccines are good, but not perfect. So, for example, if you get on a plane, if I, I'm vaccinated, and if I were to travel on a plane, I would wear a mask on the plane because then I have redundant protection. I have the vaccination and the mask, and between the two of them, you know, it's quite a safe thing. But I, I don't think you need to wear a mask outdoors. Uh, you know, it's all shades of gray. Anyway, we'll come back to that. But the point is that that certainly till the end of 2021, we're going to be living in this changed world until we reach this herd immunity threshold. And in or and or we surpass it, and enough Americans have been immunized, and then we'll. But hold, but hold on, though, because you said you think maybe we're close to fifty percent now between those who, who have had it and so are immunized, and those with the vaccines. But but clearly we're nowhere near. Well, the virus is is not diminishing fast enough, so we're not really at herd immunity yet. No, right? no, but we will we will get there. I think before the end of twenty. Uh, 
2021, but okay. wrinkles. Uh, so first of all, there are new mutants of the virus which have higher R-naughts, which are more transmissible. For example, the B117 variant, its R-naught is 4.0. So 4 minus 1 divided by 4 is 75%. Uh, and then you have to make this downward adjustment we discussed earlier for it as well. But nevertheless, the point is, it's a higher percentage. And 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 furthermore, we have uh, we haven't started to vaccinate children. We've got 75 million Americans that are younger than 18. We have uh, tens of millions of Americans who are so-called vaccine hesitant, uh, people who uh, are afraid to get the vaccine or don't want to get the vaccine or have have plainly ridiculous ideas about the vaccine. You know that the government is putting tracking devices in the vaccine, which is absurd. Uh, we also have some number of people who've been vaccinated who the vaccine is not. It's excellent. The vaccines are amazing, but it's not perfect, right? So. You pick 2%, 5% of the people who've been vaccinated could reacquire the infection. If you add all those millions of people together, you get, you know, 110, 120, 130 mm. million Americans who are a reservoir for circulation of the virus in our midst. So so anyway, going back, though, so but 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 it is I don't want to be I mean, I want to try to give a very balanced sort of factually grounded perspective. The point is, certainly by the end of 2021, enough people will have been immunized, either naturally or artificially, that they will have taken the biological and epidemiological wind out of the virus's sails. And we will end, the immediate period will end, approximately. I mean, these aren't hard and fast dates, you know. And then we will enter the intermediate period. And and that, I can, you have to think of that like a tsunami has washed ashore and devastated the land. The waters recede, but now we have to clean up the mess, right? I mean, we, we are going to be left with an enormous set of burdens to address. Uh, we will have to clean up the clinical, psychological, social, and economic sequelae of the virus. Clinically, for example, in, in the book, which, as you said, was published in August, I then forecast, at the time, there were 130,000 deaths, and I said, we're going to have at least half a million to a million Americans die before the epidemic is over. And I, I was right. I mean, we're already beyond half a million, and I think we will surpass 750,000 Americans dead. This is an, uh, this is an extraordinary calamity that has afflicted our society, and I don't I don't think people fully grasp it yet. So, but f- about we don't know for sure, but about five times as many people who die will uh, have some kind of disability, long term disability from the virus. I am not talking about long or short COVID. I'm saying you've had COVID, you've recovered, but your body has been marked. You have mm. pulmonary fibrosis or neurological deficits or psychiatric problems or renal or pancreatic insufficiency or cardiac problems. That means that if we have a million Americans who die, we'll have 5 million Americans with some kind of disability who will need our care. In addition, we're going to have millions of children that have missed school, millions of people who've who've lost their jobs, millions of businesses that have gone out of business. We are borrowing trillions of dollars. So to clean up this mess, this clinical, psychological, social, and economic mess will take time. And if you look at the history of plagues going back thousands of years, this usually takes a few years, you know, let's say a couple of years till the end of 2023, the beginning of 2024. And then I think we will enter the post-pandemic period. And usually when plagues end, it's sort of like when wars end, there's a party. You know, people are relieved. They've survived. They've seen the end of this calamity. And if you, and and I think, I think that period will be a little bit like the roaring 20s of the 21st century. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because yeah. I read that article with lots of spending and lots of sex and lots of something. Well, so- the sex, yeah, the, the, yeah, the funny thing about this is, so I said, you know, my, my line is that, you know, after people have been cooped up for so long, 
they, you know, people will, rel- understandably, people will relentlessly seek out, uh, you know, social interactions in nightclubs and restaurants and bars and sporting events and musical concerts and political rallies. And I said, which I think is true, you know, we might see some sexual licentiousness as, as mores sort of liberalize. And my sister, Katrina, who's a lawyer in Chicago, Katrina, she read that interview where I said that, and then this was, then this was picked up by the New York Post, and they gave it the New York Post headline treatment. They were like, you know, Yale professor predicts orgy or something. <laughs> I, saw, I saw that because I, I Googled you before we talked yeah. today. <laughs> yeah. That's crazy, you know. And so Katrina says, you know, Nicholas, when you talk about this, you need to emphasize that this prediction applies only to unmarried couples. Oh, oh I see. Okay, okay, all right, all right. Okay. So, so, yeah. so anyway, but the point is, there will be a kind of social liberalization that will take place and also a kind of spending, right? Like during times of plague for thousands of years, people save their money either because the economy has collapsed and there's nowhere to spend it or because quite rationally they are, you know, saving against an uncertain future. Uh, But then when the plague is over, people will spend. And uh, so I think the economy is going to boom. I think uh, we're going to see. But but hold on. But you think it's going to boom because it, because now I was just seeing on the news that, you can't get a contractor because everyone's spending money on renovating their houses. So yeah. people already, th- this is very confused as I, yes. as I can see. My question to you was much too simple as in when will yes. this be over? Um, but so you're, are you suggesting a bigger boom in spending in 2023, 2024? Well, I, like I said, these aren't hard and fast dates. These will feather into one another. So even if, for example, the the construction industry is booming now, we have other industries that are still behind and they will also eventually come to boom. And, you know, I think we will, we are still, I think we have a huge numbers of unemployed people right now. We not, I think we do. Uh, unemployment rate is still quite high. So, so I'm not saying every sector, you know, and the hospitality industry is still lagging. Uh, we are going to have a kind of a nice summer, but as I, I think the, for various reasons, but I don't think we're yet entering this post pandemic period. We still have a kind of reckoning to deal with, but eventually, you know, we will have this kind of peak uh, kind of experience, I think. And uh, and I think we'll also see, as I said, an efflorescence of the arts, a kind of burgeoning entrepreneurship and so on. And then I think finally we will have put the plague uh, behind us. The virus will still be there, but, you know, by then the numbers of people, you know, it'll be, it'll sort of seed into the background, like, like influenza, let's say. It'll become yeah. the flu, which by the way, is not a trivial disease either. Yeah, but, no, I, yeah. yeah. But, you know, it won't be what we're experiencing now. And so that's, if you look at the history of epidemics, that kind of formulation is pretty standard. And in fact, that's you asked at the beginning of our conversation today. You said, "Well, how could I write the book early on?" Well, the answer is, this is what plagues do. You know, I mean, this is we're following. You know, like we're following the stereotypic ex- human experience and almost even the sequencing uh, that one sees with these types of epidemics. All right. You know, I just I, it's, it's interesting. I guess I just have been feeling more hopeful. And uh, you've, you've really put me in my place here in the sense that I just have been way too simplistic recently. Um, no, but there is grounds. I mean, on an individual level, there's ground. like, you know, if, like, if you and your husband are vaccinated, and you want to have a dinner party, that's fine. You can, if, if uh, air travel liberalizes, and it, it is, there's some indications it will international travel, you know, you are vaccinated, and you wear a mask, you can travel somewhere else. We're lucky that there's not fomite transmission is a very limited kind of transmission. Uh, in other words, we don't, you can't really catch, you can, but it's very rare to catch the virus from surfaces. It's primarily an airborne uh, condition, you know, so you can move through the world more easily. 
And uh, and as the prevalence, this is the reason we all need to be vaccinated. I remember now you asked me about this, the messaging, the government messaging. As more and more people get vaccinated, you get the redundant benefits. It's like the network effects. In other words, you benefit when you are vaccinated and the more people that are vaccinated around you, the better, because that your probability then of getting the disease is a product of the safety that you have from being vaccinated, coupled with the fact that few people around you are infected. And that's the whole reason. It's the neighborly thing to do to get vaccinated. It's the right thing to do. It's like the reason you don't speed on a highway is not only so that you don't die yourself in an accident, it's that you don't have the right to run into someone else and kill them. All right. Well, so hold on. So that, that's that's one question is, um, do we need clearer messaging? But my other question is the, because you've covered the biological sort of piece of the pandemic so well, but the psych, I'll call it the psychological piece, even for where we are right now at the end of the beginning. Uh, yeah, I mean, you just heard me, you know, I feel like my fear and anxiety are dissipating, although they probably shouldn't be. No, but when, but when, so when is this instant, or I guess there isn't an instant that we'll all sort of know, okay, now we can relax. But I guess your, I guess your answer is that's a very, that's too simple a way to ask the question because it's going to take a couple of years. Yes. And it won't be a punctuated moment. You know, it's not like, unlike a war where, you know, there's an armistice armistice, or there's like a declaration of victory. And so the date is known. This is going to feather in. One phase will feather into another. Um, and even the way you describe your psychological response, the, the responses you and everyone else, myself too, have been having to this plague are once again, stereotypical. So plagues, you know, are a time of fear. Uh, they're also a time of grief. The grief-making power of plagues is is well understood and 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 has was described by Marcus Aurelius. I mean, it goes back centuries uh, because they are a time of loss. We lose our lives, we lose our livelihoods, we lose our way of life. I mean, everyone is dealing with a sense of loss right now. One thing or another. Young people can't go on on dating opportunities, or if you're 12, you can't go. You don't have. You can't see your friends, or you've lost your job, or you, uh, you know, you're, you can't go out to dinner parties or, or you've uh, lost money. I mean, you know, these, these are adverse effects that everyone has experienced or, or you've lost loved ones. Maybe you know someone who's died. And as the numbers rise, more and more people will have actual grief from people that they love who have died from the condition. So, so this is well understood. The fear, the grief, the lies. Another thing that's very typical, one of the things my laboratory studies is, uh, is the intricate mathematical architecture of human social interactions. We we form ourselves into these networks. You can imagine a sequence of dots and lines where every dot's a person and every line is a relationship between people. And you can imagine tracing out the flow of germs across these lines. You know, I am sick and it makes my friend sick and my friend's friend sick and my friend's friend's friend sick and so on. Well, just like the germ is spreading across these connections, so unfortunately is misinformation and lies. And um, and this has been understood for a very long time. Plagues are a time of denial and mendacity. Mm. And, in, and in fact, if you think of plague as one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, you can think of mendacity as its squire. You know, following right behind the germ is our lies. And the lies harm us. And, and there have been, you know, superstitions and uh, myths about who's to blame, for example. Another very typical feature of plagues is... is uh, Blaming of the other, you know, during the medieval time, during the bubonic plague, there was a rise in anti-Semitism. Uh, the Jews had to be blamed. HIV, it was gays were at fault or Haitians were at fault or IV drug users are at fault. 
with with COVID, it's, you know, the Chinese are at fault or immigrants are at fault. This is a stupid way of thinking about these things. The, the, the virus doesn't care. We're all human beings. And mm. we have, in my view, a, a common humanity. And the virus just kills us. Nicholas, uh, let me ask you a very practical question. What do you think of uh, about vaccine passports or certificates, whatever you want to call them? A good idea or yes. not? Is it practical oh. or not? No, I, there's nothing. I mean, the thing is, I don't understand how this is. We are we are we are heading again as a nation in a very stupid direction, which we are politicizing something which need not be politicized. Just like the mask wearing, vaccine. You know, anyone who's traveled internationally anyone who's our age and has traveled internationally when they were younger or goes to certain parts of the world still is familiar with those little old yellow vaccine cards that the WHO mm-hmm. used yeah. to prove you were vaccinated for yellow fever before you could enter, I don't know, dozens of countries around the world or that you were vaccinated against, you know, you had t- tuberculosis, uh, uh, you, know, you had BCG or that uh, you, you know, had a smallpox vaccine. I had, had a smallpox vaccine when I was a boy and it's in my little card. And, um, this is very standard. Or, for example, in, t- in today uh, in the United States, if you want to immigrate to the United States, you have to prove that you have vaccine. There's a long list on the State Department website. Of, I forgot, like 20 or 30 different vaccines you must have if you wish to immigrate to the United States. Or for many jobs, vaccines are a condition of employment. If you're a healthcare worker, it's not a choice. You have to get a flu vaccine every year. So, and prove it to your employer. <laughs> you know, we have to pr- So the idea that we would... Uh, on a temporary basis for a few years, have to uh, provide proof of vaccination to engage in certain activities. It, first of all, it's it's uh, it's also well established in law that in the United States, the government can compel you to be vaccinated because you, it's like um, like driving fast on the highway. You you have the right to do whatever you want with your own body, but a contagious disease places others at risk. You do not have the right to infect other people. Right. Well, so th- to me, this is needs to be a message that's more clearly. Yeah, but I don't think it should be so out there. I mean, I'm being very ag- aggressive and assertive in the way I phrase it to you, and it needn't be from a public health point of view. I think it could be framed appropriately as the neighborly thing to do, like get vaccinated because it's good for you. Here's the evidence that it's good for you. It's a no brainer from an individual point of view that it's vastly safer to be vaccinated than to run the risk of getting coronavirus. I mean, and we can discuss vaccine safety if you want, but this is an ext- these are extraordinarily safe vaccines and unbelievably effective, first point. Second point, it is also the neighborly thing to do. It's like almost a civic duty, you know, that you get vaccinated in order to help our economy get up on its feet again, in order to allow us to have social interactions and in order to prevent your neighbors from getting infected because of your, you know, you're not getting vaccinated. So I think there are ways to frame it. I think there are ways to... Uh, Listen to people who are hesitant to get vaccinated and try to meet them where they're at. Um, and earlier you asked, and we went on all of these, uh, we've had this meandering and, I, from my perspective, pleasurable conversation. But uh, <laughs> Yes, yeah, very, but very much asked, so. Yeah, but you asked, you asked, like, what should the nation do? Here's what I think the Trump administration should have done and what I think the Biden administration is doing to some extent. When the pandemic struck, I mean, one of the things that struck me was I couldn't believe why the White House, why the president, the previous president, was so nonchalant about this in January and February. Because as I said earlier, everyone I knew knew what was going to happen and was very alarmed. And we now know that the president was briefed 
And I was like, how could it be that I, Nicholas Christakis, know more about what's happening than the president of the United States? I mean, this made no sense, right? Like, I mean, the president has the CDC and the NSA and the CIA and all these entities that are brief, appropriately that are briefing the president. How could the president not have known? And of course, we now know the president did know, but for a variety of, I think, political reasons, decided to do very little. And this was wrong. I think what should have been done is the American people should have been called to action and to collective purpose. Uh, I think an effort should have been made to educate them to say, look, right now, it doesn't look so bad, but this is in the nature of epidemic disease. It, it, you guys remember from high school math where that curve, the exponential growth curve is really flat for a long time and then suddenly spikes up. That's what's going to happen to us. So right. Wait, but wait, hold on. But Nicholas, what about right now? What, yeah, what, well, what, what, should, what could the message be right now that might just. Yeah, but it's some of the themes of the message that should have been used then also are being used and should be used now. The, the point is the American people should have been called to sacrifice, to common purpose, to maturity, and to self-education. And so I think what's happened in a sense, and I don't want to say it quite this way, but I, I mean, I, I'm tempted to say, you know, we've gone soft, but that's not what I want to say. What I want to say is that there is no life without risk during time of a serious epidemic. And we all have to just grow up. We, we can't pretend like nothing is happening. Denial doesn't help us. That's a childlike response. It's no one's fault or blaming others. It just doesn't make any sense in this situation. It's, it sucks that we are alive during the time of a serious pandemic. It is really unfortunate, but we have to kind of forthrightly and maturely confront what is happening and accept the fact that there is going to be suffering, not just by others, but by us. Some of us are going to have loved ones who die. We're going to lose our jobs. Uh, we're going to lose wealth. By the way, Larry Summers and David Cutler, the former Treasury Secretary and also David Cutler, an economist at Harvard, they published a paper a few months ago that called this the $16 trillion virus. Mm -hmm. Our nation, from the moment this virus was loose in our nation, it caused $8 trillion in economic damage. These are vast sums of money. And $8 trillion in health damage. It was as if, from the moment the virus struck our country, Every family of four had $200,000 of wealth taken away from them. So this is a, a, an enormous calamity that has afflicted our nation. And it doesn't do us well to pretend that it's not happening. So, so the messaging needs to be, we can beat this. We have to face it forthrightly. We have to face it together. We have to make sacrifices on behalf of our community and for our own self-protection. And here is what we, the leaders, are going to do. Here is how we are going to deploy the tremendous wealth, the tremendous power, the tremendous knowledge of the American people and the American government in our joint confrontation of this very substantial threat. And I, that was not done a year ago. It is being done now, and it still needs to be done. And now the challenges are different, but they include things like vaccination. They include things like working together. For example, rich people are going to have to pay more taxes now. Mm. What, did we, what did we think? That we were this tremendous destruction of wealth was going to take place and these trillions of dollars were going to be spent, and yet no one was going to pay for it? I mean, of course we're going to have to pay for it. So this is, you know, this is, I think, the messaging that's needed. How do you, Nicholas, how do you think my... My grandchildren, who are ages four to eleven, will remember. Will remember this. Is there a long-term psychological effect? Well, first of all, I'm very jealous of your grandchildren. I, I, my kids are not quite old enough to give me grandchildren just yet. Uh, 
Yes, I think the four-year-old probably won't remember it much. I mean, our kids were young when 9-11 happened. And I think they remember 9-11, the, the, you know, the, the, the sadness, the, uh, certainly the Twin Towers falling. They had a little fear, I suppose. But I don't know how much they remember it, the ones that were that young. But I think the 12-year-old will remember the time when schools were closed, the time when uh, everyone was wearing masks. He will have a little ambient anxiety from any stress that his parents or her parents faced. And, uh, and uh, you know, I think that, you know, there are many children in our country who who are already suffering what are known as adverse childhood events, you know, divorce in their parents, a poverty, uh, physical or sexual abuse, uh, homelessness. There are millions of children who have these problems, alas, in our wonderful rich society. And I think this will add to the stress of, of the kids. And uh, there are many kids, you know, my wife, Erica, who wrote a book called The Importance of Being Little, has pointed out in some essays she's written for The Atlantic, that the effect on children is going to be a bit heterogeneous, like some fraction of kids, maybe a quarter of kids, those kids that were bullied at school, or those kids that are exceptionally, um, you know, that are uh, sort of shy or kids that are, you know, self-taught, you know, the readers on their own or, or exceptionally bright, uh, such kids actually might benefit from the pandemic. But most kids will have been adversely affected by the lack of school and, and the ambient anxiety among the adults in their community. And mm-hmm. they'll, they'll remember, but, but you know, we'll, they'll remember for a while, you know, like one of the things that, that happens with plagues and one of the reasons that they are a part of our religious traditions is that what we're trying to do is we're trying to warn our descendants of the nature of this calamity because it's not in living memory. It's not like a hurricane that comes every two or three years and people know what to do. You know, you board up the buildings, you 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 beat the traffic and flee in advance. You you kind of get a sense of how reliable is the National Weather Service and when are, when do I believe them and when do I have some skepticism and so on. With these serious pandemics, they they come every 50 or 100 years. And so there are very few individuals alive today who actually remember the 1918 pandemic. And that's why, in a sense, we have oral traditions about them. Yeah. Well, here's a here's a, a, a final question. Well, yeah. maybe, maybe a final question. So when is the next pandemic coming? And as a, as a what's the word? Well, Zoonosis uh, from wild animals. Or, but when's the next pandemic? If we get to 2025, I'm looking at my notes here. Um, uh, when's the next one? Well, it's hard to predict. I mean, these are what are known as stochastic. So every 10 or 20 years, we have a respiratory pandemic. Now, we had one, for example, in 2009 was the H1N1 influenza pandemic. But everyone listening to this is probably alive then, but but no one probably remembers it or very few do because it was so mild. It just gave you the sniffles. And every 50 to 100 years, we have a serious respiratory pandemic. The last serious one the, prior to this one was in, was in 1957. That killed 110,000 Americans, which would be about about 220,000 Americans today. So we've blown well past that. And before that was a 1918 pandemic. So this is, we're in the midst of the second worst respiratory pandemic we've had in the last 100 years. So what, what about looking forward? What do you... Well, just- okay. So, so some people say that there's reason to believe, and there is reason to believe, that these so-called zoonoses, these zoonotic diseases, that is to say pathogens that infect animals that then leap to us, there's evidence that those that's happening more and more frequently, that animal diseases are spreading to humans, actually partly because of climate change, partly because of population growth, partly because of migration patterns, and a whole host of other things. 
So, so these pathogens are leaping to us more often. So we are in fact getting new pathogens in afflicting humans more often. And maybe, you know, like Ebola and Zika and Hantavirus and so on, but maybe, maybe we are also likely to get respiratory or other pandemics that come more often instead of every 50 to 100 years, let's say every 20 to 50 years. And mm. so, and, but the point is it's, it's random. So it, we could get another one in five years or it could be 60 or 80 years. We don't know, but there, people believe that it's shortening. So it, it might be the case that in your, your grandchildren will have to face this again before they are your age or my age. I was just thinking, could you, could you end on a positive note? <laughs> I, yes. just, I just feel like you yes, really put me back down in the dark hole of, yeah, oh well, my I, God. So no, I, say I something positive. Yeah, I can. I can end on a positive note and I want to. And thank you for giving me the opportunity because, you know, we've been emphasizing some of the stereotypic ways in which epidemics are uh, afflict human beings. We haven't talked as much about the good things that uh, the good responses that that uh, that epidemics elicit. And one of the amazing things about what our species does in times of plague is that we do generally work together to confront it, whether it is that ironically that we have to work together to live apart, for example, or in the modern era, this miraculous invention of a vaccine, which reflects, uh, you know, a triumph of human cooperation and learning and teaching. You know, we have taught each other things for decades and built on the knowledge of our of our predecessors to accumulate scientific knowledge that has made it possible for us to invent and manufacture and distribute a vaccine, which will save, no doubt, many millions of lives. And this is a very distinctive and admirable quality in our species. And the, the, the quote that I like to use to illustrate this positive uh, point is from Albert Camus' uh, book novel, The Plague. Camus uh, sets his... Uh, novel in uh, in the 1940s in North Africa, but it's it's based on uh, bubonic plague outbreaks from the 19th century uh, that he was familiar with. And the protagonist in the book is a doctor by the name of Dr. Rieu. And uh, Camus writes the following, which I think captures my, captures my belief about epidemics and actually captures more generally my philosophical stance about human beings and about our common humanity and about how how admirable we humans can be, and also captures a lot of the research that my laboratory has been doing on, as I alluded to earlier, on the deep origins of human goodness. And so this is what Camus writes about Dr. Rieu, the protagonist. Dr. Rieu resolves to compile this chronicle so that some memorial of the injustice and outrage done them might endure, and to state quite simply what we learn in time of pestilence, that there are more things to admire in men than to despise. And that's exactly how I feel about human beings. There are more things to admire in us than to despise. And I actually think we will see the other side of this plague because plagues always end. And I hope our time in the crucible will be marked by good behavior and cooperative actions towards each other. Right. Oh, Nicholas, thank you. I mean, now I'm feeling better. But thank you. Thank you so much. This was just fascinating and amazing. Uh, Thanks so much thank for you. having me, Debbie. And that's it for this episode of the Boulder Podcast. If you like what you're listening to, help us spread the word. Tell a friend or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. 
and email us at theboulderpodcast at gmail.com. Till next time, I'm Debbie Weil, 